You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. When we left here Wednesday night, everybody in the choir really and truly had experienced a service of worship in a choir rehearsal. Can you imagine that in a choir rehearsal? Just from the spirit of this brother, uh, read scripture with us, led us in prayer, led the choir through the process of understanding the words that they were singing in the anthem that was sung this morning and, and gave testimonies and God just blessed Wednesday night. We just had a worship service. Could have given an invitation Wednesday night after the... Uh, after the choir rehearsal, and uh, thank you. Phil's going to be again with our choir Wednesday night and is going to be leading us again in worship next Sunday. So you pray for him. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ronnie, could I have just a little bit more? Because I'm going to back off of it just a little bit. Thank you. Ephesians chapter 4. In just a moment, we're going to read verses 17 through 20. Folks, we got started a little bit late today, so give me a break, okay, if I go a little bit long. I mean, I never do. <laughs> I never have. Uh, Kasbrin's got his alarm set down here on the front row. Uh, I've got to be in Amarillo at 6.30 tonight, so I can't do a whole lot of, of going long, long, long-winded. Tonight, uh, we're going to be in a service, uh, a worship service, uh, meeting a young man that I have met before and talked with, and they're going to be a part of the worship service to, to uh, hear him leading congregational worship. You know that we're in the process of looking for a minister of music praying for God's man, and tonight my wife and I are going to be going that direction. I'm going to lead a retreat for the next few days up in the mountains of New Mexico, suffering for the Lord, and on the, in, the, in the process, on the way, we're going to stop in Amarillo and uh, be in that worship service tonight to hear him and uh, just to, to, to worship with him. And so uh, you guys have a good time tonight. I know you're going to. Brother Phil's going to be leading you, and Alan McBrayer is going to break the word of life to you tonight preaching from Philippians chapter 2, that tremendous passage, have this mind also in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, and though he was in the form of God, and you know the rest of that passage, and so Alan's going to be exposing that scripture for you tonight. You know, the word is very clear. The word of God is very clear and certain that when you trust Jesus as Savior, you receive a new nature in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, that simply means that when you get saved, God doesn't just patch up your old nature. He doesn't just kind of put a few patches and and shore it up a little bit. But the scripture says that you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. You become a new person, have a new nature. That means then that the child of God is not somebody that has just decided to do a little bit better in life. The Christian is not somebody who has just decided that they're going to join a church, although that's important. But the child of God is someone who has been born again, who has a brand new nature in Jesus. Now, I know I see the question mark on some of your faces, and your question mark says this. If that's so, if I have a new nature, if I have been born again, really and truly in Christ Jesus, then why do I still sin? Why do I still struggle with the old life If I have, in fact, got a new nature, well, I think we might find an illustration in the Old Testament. I'm not going to be preaching out of the Old Testament. just going to give you an illustration out of the life of Lot and his wife. You remember who Lot was? 
He was the guy that was the righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah, the only one. And God told him, Lot, get your family and get out of town because I'm going to rain fire and brimstone upon this place. They have become so evil and so wicked. You get your family and get out of here. But don't look back, Lot. Don't look back. As you leave town, don't look back. And so Lot got his family together, all the kids and the wife, and they took off and headed for the city limits. You remember the story. When they got to the city limits, Lot's wife couldn't let go. She just couldn't let go of that place. And so she turned around, the scripture says, and looked and immediately turned into a pillar of salt. What an awesome, awesome story. How would you like to be poured out of a salt shaker for the rest of your life? But that was her. She couldn't let go of Sodom and Gomorrah. So at the city limits, she turned around and looked back. And her punishment, the scripture says, that she had turned into a pillar of salt. Now, the reason, folks, that many of us struggle with the old life, the reason that many of us struggle with victory on a day-by-day basis is because we keep looking back. We're constantly looking back. Yes, you've been born again. Yes, you have a new nature in Christ, but you will not quit looking back at the old life. And when you do that, you open your mind to all of the influences of the world and, in effect, become a pillar of salt spiritually. Many of us are in that condition. Spiritually, we have become pillars of salt because like Lot's wife, we can't stop looking back at the old life. You know that there's a battle going on for your mind today? There really is a battle for your mind. As a matter of fact, I think somebody's written a book entitled The Battle for Your Mind. There's a battle that's going on for your mind. You see, Satan wants to ruin your mind. God wants to renew your mind. Paul said it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, your mind is important. Why is your mind so important in this spiritual battle that we're involved in? Why is your mind so important? It's because of this, because what you think is what you are. Now, I know some of you say, no, 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 James, you've got it all wrong. It's what you eat. (laughs) It's what you become. No, that's not it. What you think is what you become. You see, if you sow a thought, you reap an action, you reap a deed. If you sow a deed, you reap a character. And when you sow a character, you reap an eternal destiny. Your mind is important. God wants to renew your mind, to remake your mind, and to mold your mind. But some of us are losing the battle with the mind and are losing the battle with the victorious Christian life, looking back to the old life the way that Lot's wife These verses of Scripture, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul is writing to these Ephesian Christians, and he's saying, in effect, to them, stop living like the world. Stop living like the Gentiles. Don't look back at the old way of life. And then he goes on in these verses and explains the world. He goes on and explains the lifestyle that the world lives in the hopes that these Ephesian Christians, when they really get a grasp on what the world is like and the lifestyle that the world lives, that when they really get a grasp on that, they'll not ever want to look back again. They'll not ever want to look back at the old life again, but they'll be wanting to go on and to live for the Lord Jesus. And so Paul begins by encouraging them, stop living like the Gentiles, quit looking back at that old way of life. And in these verses, chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, Paul gives us an anatomy of the lost world. He gives us a picture of the lost world in the hopes that we as God's people, when we see that, will never desire to look back and to go back into that world ever again. Chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, 
that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, listen, but you did not learn Christ in that way. Paul gives us an anatomy of the lost world. In effect, he says, run as fast as you can and don't look back. Now let's notice, first of all, the condition of this lost world, the condition of the lost world in verse 17. Paul says, I entreat you, I encourage you, don't walk like the Gentiles do anymore. The word walk is a very familiar word in Scripture. You know that it always refers to a way of life. It refers to a pattern of life. It refers to a lifestyle. And so Paul is looking at the lifestyle of these Gentiles, and he's saying to these Christians, don't walk like them, don't live like them, don't have that lifestyle that they have anymore. Get rid of that attitude that characterizes the life of the Gentiles and get on with the living for God. You see, the mark of a Christian, folks, is a new walk. The mark of a child of God is a new walk. It is a new attitude toward life. And that new attitude toward life always is going to show itself and make itself manifest in a new walk, in a new lifestyle, in a new way of living life. And so Paul says, don't live like the Gentiles. No longer walk like the world. And then he goes on and he describes this world, the way that the world walks. At the very end of verse 17, he says, they walk in the futility of their mind. The world walks in the futility of their mind. Now, for us to understand that, we need to examine some terms. First of all, I want you to notice the term mind. He says the world is characterized by this kind of lifestyle. It is a lifestyle of futility of mind. Now, when you think of mind, you think of intellect, probably. That's part of this word, but this word goes far beyond that. It means more than just the intellect. In the next verse, he speaks of understanding. And, and in that verse, he's really speaking about uh, knowledge that can be grasped with the intellect. But this word mind is an all-inclusive word. It takes in the entire thought process. It means the will, the conscience, the emotions, the intellect, all of that put together really and truly in the original language. This word mind means the total personality or the total life of an individual. He says that the world walks in futility of life, really, is what he's saying. In futility of lifestyle, the whole ball of wax is futile. Now, the second word we'll look at is the word futile. Are you hot? I'm hot and getting hotter by the second. So if you have to slap yourself this morning to stay awake, please do. It may wake me up too. I don't know. We got all these hot bodies in here and it just gets warm. Uh, but shake your coat or whatever you have to do. <laughs> don't do it too much though, Glenn. <laughs> Might knock somebody out next to you. Uh, but... Don't do it a whole lot, uh, but just enough to stay awake, to stay cool. Okay, in their mind, and he says in the, there you go. There's a man that knows what he's doing. In the futility, he's going to freeze you out in a few minutes is what he's going to do. They, the world walks in the futility of their mind. That word futility doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, does it? It means empty. It means vain. It's a word that means there is no substance to it. Now listen, he's saying that the world walks, this is their lifestyle in the futility, in the emptiness of their mind, their lifestyle. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It is empty. It is void. There's a vacuum. Have you ever 
heard of someone refer to somebody that they just said was just not real sharp as being an airhead? That's what Paul is saying in essence. He's saying the world thinks like an airhead. <laughs> There's a vacuum between the ears in the life of the world like an airhead. I heard a guy refer to a friend of his who wasn't just real sharp, like sharp as an anvil, who uh, said, you know that guy, the lights are on, but nobody's home. <laughs> You know, I mean, the lights are on, but there's nobody home. And Paul is kind of saying, in essence, that this is the lifestyle of the world. It's empty. It's vain. It's futile. But that word futility means also, and it carries further, it means not only empty and vain, but it means aimless. It means pointless. No direction. Something that does not lead to a goal. My wife and I live on a cul-de-sac. About three or four years ago, I couldn't even pronounce that, much less want to live on one. I love living on a cul-de-sac because there's no through traffic, you know. It just kind of wraps around there. It comes to a dead end. But I have always hated those things because invariably, I would try to be visit somebody and I'd try to find their home. And I would come into one of those neighborhoods, and you know what I'm talking about, where every street is a cul-de-sac, you know. You go down one street, dead end. You turn around, you go to the next street, dead end. Turn around and go to the next street, dead end, dead end, dead end. Every single street, not going anywhere, not leading anywhere. Now, that's kind of the picture that Paul is painting of the life of the lost man, the life of a lost world. It's a cul-de-sac going nowhere. It's a dead-end street from beginning to end. Futile, vain, empty. I heard the story that came out of the, the Depression years in our country when we had the Great Depression not only was it in our country, but it was really a depression around the world. And in Ireland, work crews were organized in much the same way that they were in our country uh, for the purpose of giving men just a job, just to earn enough money to give them some productivity in order they might just put bread on the tables to feed their families. And one of the work crews that uh, was organized in the, in, the, in the country of Ireland during the days of the depression was a work crew to build a road. And it was for the purpose of just giving the men something to do that they would not feel so aimless, so futile, uh, that they'd be doing something with their hands and, and they would pay just enough to, to feed their families, just enough to live, to get by on. And they were building this road and, and one day one of the men asked the foreman, he said, why are we building this road? Where is this road going? And the foreman said, this road's going nowhere. It's going nowhere we're just building a road, but it doesn't have any point. It's not going anywhere. And after about two or three days, the word had begun to spread, and they said that productivity on that work crew was literally cut in half within just a couple of days. You see, nobody wants to build a road to nowhere. I mean, who in their right mind wants to build a road that's going nowhere? What a picture of futility. Building a road that has no goal, that has no purpose, that has no no direction. It's aimless. It's just going out there, not really going anywhere. But that's what Paul says. The life of the world is characterized like. The Gentiles, he says, walk in the futility of their mind, their life. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's going nowhere. Many of you have probably heard of the atheistic philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't really know if that's exactly how you pronounce his name. That's the way I've always pronounced it. I did some reading of Sartre when I was in the uh, in college and in seminary and philosophy, just to study what the other half says and what the other half believes. Just a couple of years ago, Sartre died and met God and found out 
that all of the atheistic philosophy that he promulgated during all of his life was truly false, was utterly false. But Sartre's view of life and his atheistic philosophy was given like this. He grew up on the waterfront of France, around the docks and around the wharfs in France as a little boy, and I'm sure he was just scampering around like a little rug rat on the docks as a little child in, in France. And later on, he drew his entire view of life from an experience as a little boy on those, on those docks. He said, life is like a water bug. A water bug that was very heavily populated on the docks, on the waterfront. And he says, the water bug begins on one side of the dock. And his goal is to reach the other side of the dock. And so he begins and he scampers across the dock. And just about the time that he almost gets there, he gets almost to the other side. Then a big Frenchman comes along and squashes him. Sartre said, that's a picture of life. He said, you're going along and it looks like you're going to make it somewhere in life. And just about the moment that you almost get there, he said, death comes along and squashes you. That's that philosopher's view of life. That's what Paul's saying. The world lives. Empty, futile, going nowhere, having no meaning and no purpose. What a picture of futility to think that all there was in life was to live X number of years and to die and be squashed on a dock like a bug. But that's the, the world's picture of life. That's all the life, all the meaning, all the purpose that a lost man or woman knows because you see he doesn't know Jesus. But the child of God, folks, the child of God has meaning, has purpose in life, not only to live for Jesus in this life, but the promise of living with Jesus in eternity. There's meaning and there's purpose, but the world, Paul says, walks in the futility of their mind. It's empty. It's meaningless. And Paul is saying, in essence, don't live like that. Don't walk like that. Don't look back at the world. So that's the condition of the lost world. Let's go on quickly and look at the cause of this futile condition. I want you to go home depressed today or anything. I want you to go home lifted up and, and, and magnifying the Lord that you don't live in that lost life. And that's really what Paul is doing. <laughs> Say, praise God, I'm not a bug. <laughs> you know, on, on the French docks that a Frenchman came, came along and just squashed my life. Praise God. But that's the condition of the lost man that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Then in verse 18, Paul gives us the cause of the world's condition, of the world's futility of mind. And in verse 18, he mentions several things, but the key to it all is right in the middle of the verse. Why does the world walk in futility? Why is there no meaning, no purpose in the life of the world? It's because of what he says, that they are excluded from the life of God. That's the reason for the futility of the world. They are excluded from the life of, the, uh, of God. Can you imagine? What an awesome, frightening word, excluded. Some of you get visions of the second grade when they were choosing sides, don't you? And you were always the last one to get chosen. Excluded, left out, put aside. Nobody wants to be excluded. Nobody wants to be left out. But Paul says that's the reason for the futility of the world in their mind is because they are excluded from the life of God. Now, by life of God, what does Paul mean? Does he mean a godly life? No. 
He's not talking about being excluded from the ability to live a godly life. Certainly, they are that. He's not talking about a life that is just pleasing to God. That's important, but that's not what he's talking about here. There are two words for life in the original language. The first one is the word bios. You recognize that word because we get our English word from, as a derivative from that Greek word, the word biology. It means the study of life in English. It means in the original language, bios, it means life in general. It means a particular style of life, and it refers particularly to physical kind of life. That's not the word that Paul used here when he speaks of the life of God from which they're excluded. But he uses a, a more uh, a higher word, a more expressive word. He uses the word zoe, which is a higher word for life. It means life in its absolute sense. It means life as God alone knows it. It means the kind of life that God the Father has. Paul says the world lives in futility, aimless, purposeless, an airhead. The lights are on, but nobody's home because they're excluded from the life of God. They don't know the life that God has. They don't know the life that God is able to give to his people, so therefore there is no meaning and there is no purpose in their life. Now think about that. If the world is excluded from the life of God, what's the flip side of that coin? That means that God's people participate in the life of God, don't they? Isn't that what the scripture says? The world is futile is empty in its mind and its life and its goal and its purpose because they are excluded from the life of God. But on the flip side of that, those who know Jesus, those who are God's chosen, called, elect people, have been, live, have been given the very life of God. We don't have just physical, bios, biological kind of life, but we have divine life living within us. Now, isn't that what the Apostle Peter said? When he says that we have become partakers of the divine nature of God. Sometimes we ought to sit still for just a moment and let that sink in. We have become partakers of the divine nature of God. Paul says that because you know Jesus as Savior, you have the very life of God living within you. But you see, the reason that the non-believer, the reason that the lost world is in the futility of their mind is because they don't have the life of God living within them. They stand outside of that. He says they are excluded. That's why the great hymn says, he included me. <laughs> Amen. He included me. Thank God he included me. I no longer stand on the outside, but I now stand within the confines of the very divine nature of God, the very lie of God. Now, if that's the cause of this futility, why wouldn't someone do something to take care of it? Why wouldn't someone do what it takes, what is necessary to rectify the situation and to quit walking in futility but begin to walk in meaning and purpose and to receive the life of God? Paul goes on and he explains why the world continues in this futile walk of their mind. He says in verse 18, is because of their ignorance. He says their understanding has been darkened. There has been a veil that has come over their eyes. And then at the very end of 18, he gets literally to the heart of the matter. He gets to the very heart of the matter, and he says the reason that the world continues in this, in this futile lifestyle, is because of the hardness of their hearts. 
because of the hardness of their hearts. And in verse 19, he begins the verse, and he says, and they have become callous, the hardness of their hearts. And the word hardness, folks, is, was an interesting word in the original language. It was a medical term. It's a medical term that referred to that, that deposit that forms over a bone when the bone has been broken. You understand that if a bone is set back correctly after it's been broken, then the deposit that forms over it becomes harder than the bone itself. And the point of the break becomes more difficult to break than the bone right next to it that has never been broken. That word hardness that Paul uses is a medical term that refers to that deposit that is covers over that place of a break in a bone. It means hard as rock, hard as stone. And then he talks about callus. You, you got calluses, some of you, don't you? Calluses on your hands. You do manual type labor. Calluses on your feet. All of you got calluses on your feet. That's why your feet are so ugly. Because <laughs> you got calluses. The scripture says, beautiful are the feet of those who spread the gospel of peace. The only beautiful feet on the face of the earth are those of God's people. They look ugly physically, but spiritually they're beautiful. But you see, you get calluses on the bottom of your feet and that you get blisters and then you walk for a while and they turn into calluses. It makes it a little bit easier to walk. Back when I was playing guitar a lot back in college and before, I used to play for hours and hours every week. I get calluses so thick on the tips of my fingers that I used to do something just to get kicks. Just for grands, I used to take a needle and thread and thread my fingers together. I had a callus literally on the tips of my fingers that was as much as an eighth of an inch thick. And I could take a needle and I could just thread a needle through my fingers and just sew my fingertips together. I used to have just a blast with that in school. You know, the girls that just sit there and, you know, some of the guys that do that too. That's what Paul's talking about. Has heart happened to the heart of the non-believing world? They have become hardened in their hearts. They have become callous. There is a film, there is a veil over the heart of a lost man that keeps him from coming to know Jesus as Lord and Master. That's the thing, same thing that Paul, that Jesus talked about in the parable of the soils. You remember he talked about the word is sown on various soils. And he says, some of the seed of the word fell on stony ground, he said. And it was so hard that the seed could not take root. It couldn't come in. And so the birds came very quickly and plucked it away. That's the picture of the heart of a lost world, of a lost man. His heart has become hardened, has become callous, no longer is able to respond to the call of the Spirit of the living God. Oh, Pharaoh is a good illustration of that. Remember, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, God has told me to tell you to let his people go. And I'm telling you, let my people go. Pharaoh said, okay, no problem. And then Every time the scripture says that God, that Pharaoh would be just about be to let the children of, of Israel leave Egypt, the scripture says what? Pharaoh hardened his heart. And time after time throughout the plagues, it would say he'll let them go. And then just at the point when they were about to be released, it would say Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And then finally it says, and then God hardened his heart. Did you get that? Pharaoh said, no, 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 no. And God said, okay, no. Forever. Let it be, no. Let there be a judicial, no, on your life. He hardened his heart. And finally, God said, okay, let him have it. Let him have it. It's his. It's the very same thing that Paul said in Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the same type of people that he's talking about here in Ephesians, the Gentile world, the non-believing world. And he says they had the witness of God. They could have known God. 
I mean, even the heavens declare his glory. Everywhere you look, you can know there is a living God, yet they rejected him. They said, no, no, no. And three times in Ephesians 1, uh, Romans 1, it says, and God gave them over to the hardness of their hearts. Why does the world continue to walk in the futility of their minds? Because they have hardened their hearts to the message of the living Lord Jesus. For some of you here today, there maybe was a time when your heart was saw to the things of God, when your heart was pliable to the things of God, but you have said no to Jesus so many times that your heart is becoming like a stone. Do you know that every time you say no to the Spirit of God, every time that you say no, you just pour concrete in your heart. You just pour concrete in your heart. And your heart is filling up. And someday is going to come to that point where God is going to say, let it be. Let it be. And your heart is as hard as a rock and can no longer even hear, much less respond to the call of the Spirit of God. The condition of the world, folks, is futility. Why look back? Why look back, children of God? Why are some of you constantly looking back across the Jordan. The world lives in futility. There's no meaning. There's no purpose in hardness of heart. Why look back, Paul says, stop living like the world. And then finally, the consequence of it all. He tells it. The consequence of this futility of life, the consequence of this hardness of heart in verse 19, he uses some very strong words to describe what results from hardening your heart against God. He says they are excluded from the life of God. Excluded, shut out, pushed aside. And then he describes the consequence of this exclusion from the life of God. And he says God has given them over. And they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He just kind of throws that one in at the end. Sensuality and all practice of impurity with greediness. That word sensuality simply means shameless wantonness. It means the inability to blush over sin anymore. You know what I'm talking about? You've known someone like that, haven't you? At one time, they were able to blush over their sin they were able to feel conviction over their sin, but as time went by, they hardened their heart and poured more concrete into their heart. And finally, they came to that, that level of, of sin that this word describes in sensuality where they're no longer able to blush over sin. It is a shameless wantonness of sin. An unashamed obscenity is what that word means in the original language. They've lost the ability to blush. What a picture of our world. Look where our world is going. Excluded from the life of God, living in futility of mind, hardness of heart, and look at the process, look at the consequence, sensuality, unashamed obscenity. What more could describe at least the United States and the entire world in 1985? In our country today and around the world, the sin of homosexuality that used to lurk within the very darkest corridors of our cities now, what do they do? March down Main Street, don't they? USA demanding rights for their alternate lifestyle. 
our Supreme Court of our own land, some 12 years ago, legalized murder of an unborn child. And since that time, millions upon millions upon millions of lives that were precious to God have been put to death in the mother's womb before they ever had the opportunity for life. And some of them that are aborted and born that are born alive are thrown into trash cans. What more could describe sensuality? Unashamed obscenity. What could be a better picture of what Paul is saying in this verse of scripture? Pornography in our country has become a 10 to $12 billion industry a year. That's the legalized pornography. There's no telling the illegal pornography what it's gotten to be. You know, that is three times the record and the movie industry put together. Did you realize that? Pornography generates three times the income that the record and the movie industry do together. At one time, pornography was confined to the smut shops of the large cities. And now today, folks, you can walk into the local 7-Eleven neighborhood convenience store and buy anything you want. Unashamed obscenity. Making a life off of the purveying of flesh. What could describe what Paul is saying in Ephesians better than a picture of America in 1985? Lost the ability to blush. Living in futility. No meaning, no purpose. Excluded from the life of God in the hardness of heart. Giving themselves over to sensuality. With greediness. Paul's word to the children of God at Ephesus is, don't walk like that. Don't live like that. Don't even look back. Don't even look back, child of God. That's what God saved you from. That's what God has called you from, that kind of life. That kind of futility, that kind of exclusion from the life of God. But now in Jesus, there's meaning, there's purpose. Why are you losing the battle? Because you're losing the battle of the mind. Because you're looking back. I don't know any of you that are here tonight, today, that would go to bed at night and would open every door and every window of your house just out of curiosity to see what might crawl in. You wouldn't do that. That's foolish. Yet some of you are doing that in your Christian life. You have thrown every door, you have thrown every window of your life open just to see what might crawl in. You're looking back across the Jordan. You're looking back at Sodom. You're looking back at the old way of life with a sparkle in your eye and you wonder why there's no joy in living for Jesus. And you wonder why there's no victory in your life because you're losing the battle of the mind. Paul says, stop it. A little translation of that is says doesn't say do not live like the Gentiles. A little translation of that grammatical construction says stop living like the Gentiles. He is intimating that some of them are living, continuing to live like the Gentiles. And Paul says stop it. Stop living like the world. The condition of the world is futility. The cause is exclusion from the life of God because of the hardness of heart. The consequence is a life of sensuality unashamed obscenity and that describes it let's pray together father we thank you for this 
word is a hard word, God. It's a hard word. We need a, we need a hard word. We need somebody to slap us in the face. And your word does that every time we open it, every time we read it. Oh, Lord, I pray that this morning that you'd touch a heart, a life here. Someone who knows Jesus, who has the new nature, but just keeps on looking back and looking back and looking back at the world. God, do your work. I pray for that one that doesn't know Jesus that's here this morning. I sense it, Lord. There's someone here that has never been saved, has never been born again. And this morning, Father, I pray that your spirit would do his work, that they had not hardened their heart, but they'd respond to the call of the spirit of the living God today. In faith, be saved, trust Jesus, and be born again. Father, we bless you and we praise you in this time. It's yours. Now you take control. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a hymnal. Turn to hymn number 180. Or I better, if we are all unified in the body of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you and we praise you for this day, for your word. I pray that you'll take these words and just anoint them to our hearts. God, we ask for your will in this time. Bless your word as you promise your word never returns more. And we stand upon that today in this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray it.